You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. Romans chapter 8. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, that would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap. And it would also be helpful to maybe stick something that would give you easy access over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. So Romans chapter 8, 1 Peter chapter 1. And while you're turning there, uh, let me just remind you, today is Father's Day. It is Father's Day. And to all of our men in the room, uh, just a couple of quick things uh, to you. It is hard for me to describe uh, just our hopes here and, and us just begging the Lord to make boys who would grow up into godly men. It, it is just one of the deepest desires that we have that God would use this church family to do that. To, to help men see the distinct voice that God has given them into their family. And they would then in turn use that distinct voice that the Lord has given you in particular for your family, for his ends and his purposes, that you would be a good shepherd in the context of your home, that you would be a good pastor in the context of your home, that you would have tough skin and a really, really tender heart, that God would make us into those sorts of men, those sorts of pastors in our home, that God would, would make our men into the sort of men who would lead out and model what it looks like to love Jesus in our home, what it looks like to, to model this, this sort of like life for Jesus in our home, that God would make our guys into those sort of men and those sort of pastors. This is what we're asking the Lord for. So in light of that, um, I want to have all of our men that are fathers, I want you to stand there where you are and we're gonna just take a second to honor you. So all of our men that are fathers, just stand right there where you are. And just, just oh, hang tight, just right there. We want to take a moment to pray for our men. And so if you'll join me in this, let's just intercede that God would do these sorts of things in the hearts of our, our men. So Father, we are asking you, the sovereign God who is also pledged to be a good daddy to us. Father, I pray that these men, these fathers would feel your fatherhood in an experiential way. God, I pray that you would make these, these men into godly shepherds and godly pastors in their home. Father, would you please, God, would you help them recognize the distinct voice you have given them into their wife, into their kids? God, would you help them be good pastors and be good shepherds? God, would you put in them a deep love and affection for you? God, I pray that, that just on a continual basis, they, they would be the sort of men, I would be the sort of men, the sort of fathers who are holding up our lives to you and just all over saying again, God, we are yours. We are your, do what you would will with us. Father, I pray that these men would have ambitions for their lives that would go beyond this life. God, I pray that you would put in them a hunger for eternity, a hunger for the things of you. God, I pray that their heart would beat for you. Like the psalmist, that their, their heart would be like a deer as it comes to the water, just panting for more. God, would you make these men into those sorts of men? God, would you be stirring these sort of ambitions, these sort of hopes, this sort of love up in their heart? 
And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. So why don't we give it one more time up to our men as we honor them. Okay, Romans chapter 8. If you have stumbled in, and this is your first day today to be with us, um, we are in the middle of a set of sermons in, in, kind of throughout the book of Roman, or the, the chapter of, of Romans 8. And so if this is your first time, it's no worries. You can kind of pop in right now and it can be good for you. Uh, so you don't have to worry about what you've missed. But we are right in the middle of this set of sermons through Romans chapter 8. And one of the reasons that we have been wanting to do this set of sermons in Romans 8 is because it gives us time and space to think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we've been saying this for the last couple of weeks. And if you want to summarize the teaching of Romans 8 on the Holy Spirit, this would be one of the ways that you could summarize it. Is It is God, through Paul, reminding us that God's provision for weak, struggling, and failing Christians is the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is God's provision for us, you and I, who are struggling, who are weak, who are failing, who are falling. God's provision is to, to gift us, to give us, to, to put inside of us the Holy Spirit. Now, we have talked a lot about the, the ongoing work and the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. But a couple of weeks ago, we looked, it, we're in kind of this set or this couple of verses from Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. And we have looked, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Spirit imparts to us a new identity. When we turn from our sin and throw our life upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit then indwells us and makes us sons of God, daughters of God. He gives us this new identity. That's the theme of verses 14 through 17. All four of those verses refer to our adoption, this new identity that the Holy Spirit gives us, the sons and daughters of God. Then last week we talked about the ongoing work and the ongoing role of the Holy Spirit, not just to impart to us this new identity, but to help us feel deep down in our bones this new identity. To, to take this identity, what we are positionally, sons and daughters of God, and to press that down into our soul where we feel that on an experiential level. To take what we are positionally and to help us feel that practically. This is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit where he's producing in us this Abba Father cry where he is witnessing to our spirit that we really are children of God. Now we want to take one more step this week as we look at verses 17 and 18 and we want to think through our new identity, so this new identity, sons and daughters of God, and the new future that that identity secures for us. So, so this new future, this is what verses 17 and 18 lead us to thinking about. This new future, that this new identity, sons and daughters of God secures for us. So let's read this again, starting in verse 14, Romans chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you, th those who have received Jesus, those who have trusted Jesus, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In verse 17 and 18, this is where we are today. And if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. And then verse 18, if you're looking at the ESV, that, that translation, right above verse 18, you're going to see the heading future glory. This is the theme that Paul is about to, be, about to unpack in verse 18 and beyond. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is God's word. Okay, I want to take verses 17 and 18. I'm going to break them down into three parts to try to help us just think through. What is God, through the Apostle Paul, in these two verses, trying to convince us of? What is he trying to say to us? What does he want us to leave with? What, what does he want us to see and think and feel? What, what is he doing here? So let me break it down into three parts. Here's part one. Here's the first thing that Paul wants us to see in verses 17 and 18. Number one. The father's kids are his heirs. The father's kids are his heirs. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now just notice, just right off the surface, and let me just say this again. In verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, in those four verses, Paul repeatedly, in every one of those verses, reminds us of our new identity that the spirit of God imparts to us. And he does it again here in verse 17. He reminds us again, you are kids. You're God's kids. He's your dad. You're his sons and daughters. He's reminding us of this new identity. Now, I want to take just a moment to apply that in particular on Father's Day. Because there are some in the room who when you think of Father's Day or you experience a day like today, it's not a neat, tidy, good feeling day to you. It actually brings about a sense of loss. And, and there could be several reasons for that. Um, for some of you in the room, when you think of your dad, you don't have warm thoughts of your dad. Maybe he was a very hard man. Maybe he was a very poor father. Um, so some of you, when you think about today, it's hard to celebrate today in light of that. Or others, maybe you're in the category of my wife, Laura, who um, lost her dad. He, he died when she was um, her first year in college. And so maybe a, a day like today is difficult for you because of those sorts of things. Now hear me, if that is you, what Paul is reminding us of, what, what, what he's referring us, he's pointing us to the good news of Jesus. And he's reminding us of even if our, our experience with our biological father was not good, or it just was too short. And, and on a day like today, we experience a sense of loss. He is pointing us to Jesus and, and reminding us that the good news of Jesus is great news for you in particular on a day like today. I love how J.I. Packer defines or answers really the question, what is a Christian? He asked the question, what is a Christian? Here's how he answers that question. He says, you know, there's a lot of ways you could answer that, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as their father. One who has God as their father. Now that is great news for many of us who did not have great biological dads. And here is what, here is what Jesus, and I think Paul in this moment would want us to all get a sense of, that regardless of how bad your earthly dad was, your biological father was, regardless of what sort of damage was done to you, it was not so severe that God's perfect fatherhood could not straighten it out and fix it. I hear that. Regardless of your experience with your biological father, it was not so damaging and so bad that God as your perfect father cannot undo and straighten it out. 
Just feel that for a second. Paul's reminding us we are sons and daughters of God. He is a perfect dad for us. Now in this passage, he doesn't just remind us of this new identity. He also points us to one of its privileges. Let me just look at this again here. Verse 17, he says, and if children, then heirs. Paul is pointing us to this great privilege we have of something coming to us in the future. This privilege of this inheritance. Now I want you to see in verse 17, Paul, this is such an important thing. When Paul is talking about children and heirs, there is a, there is a indissolvable link between these two. It's if you're this, then you're that. If you're a child of God, then you're also an heir. So if you're a kid of God, if you're one of his sons and daughters, that means you are also one of his heirs. Now, let me um, just throw out a quick quote from me from Martin Lloyd-Jones and just thinking about what does it mean to be an heir? Why should we think about this idea of being an heir? Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in um, England, maybe the greatest preacher of the last century. Listen to what he says when he's thinking about this idea or this theme of us being heirs of God. He says it this way. The word heirs means that there is a great inheritance awaiting all Christians. This is one of the great themes in the Bible. And to me, it is a matter of increasing astonishment that it is such a neglected theme. So he's saying it's a great theme, one of the most important themes, but for far too many people, it is a neglected theme, something we just don't think about very often. He goes on, I want to emphasize this. There is no more important theme for the church at this present time than this very theme of our being heirs of God. This teaching, this notion, this truth influences our whole view of the Christian life. Now, if this theme is that important, we would do well to think upon this theme, to consider this theme, to keep this theme of us being heirs of God in front of us. Um, one of my friends, Ray Ortland, he um, defines the gospel in a way that I just love. It's really simple. It's memorable. I say it a lot because I want you to kind of get this worked into your own bones as well when you're thinking about the good news of Jesus. And here, here's the way he defines it. He just does it in three parts. Part number one, we're all idiots. It's a humbling thing to admit, isn't it? We're all idiots. And the problem is it's so true. We're all idiots. Number two, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. Part three, anyone can get in on this. Here's the three parts. We're all idiots. Part number two, we have an incredibly bright future in front of us for all of those who, you know, that are in Jesus. That future is so bright. And number three, anyone, anyone, if you want to get in on that, you can get in on that. Anyone can get in on this. Now, part of what Paul is doing in mentioning, uh, uh, you know, in connecting, if you're a child, then you're an heir. He is pointing us. He's bringing into focus this incredibly bright future that is before every son and daughter of God. This is what he is doing. He's, he's taking our gaze, he's getting it off the present day, and he's pointing us and getting our gaze fixed on the incredibly bright future that's awaiting every son and daughter of God. Now, Paul, part of what Paul is doing in Romans chapter eight is trying to get us to do that, to get our gaze off the present and into the future. Now, let me just show you one of the ways that he's trying to do this. When you're thinking about your adoption, when you're thinking about your adoption, it is both a present reality, a present experience. So it is right to say we are adopted. We are sons and daughters of God. 
but there is so much in the future. It's a, it's a present reality, but so much of the reality of our adoption will be finally realized at the coming of Jesus. Okay, now let me just show you how Paul does this, how, he, how he's saying, yes, there are things that you can experience now, but how at the same time, there's so much in the future. Your future is so incredibly bright in Jesus. Look at verse 15. Now I want you to see how Paul talks about your adoption. In verse 15, Paul refers to your adoption in the past tense. You have received the spirit of adoption. Past tense, something you have already received. It's already signed, sealed, delivered. You are a son or daughter of God. But then skip forward to verse 22 of Romans 8. And look at, look at what he says down here. In verse 22 and 23, he's, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, this is verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So which is it? In verse 15, it's you have been adopted. But now in verse 23, he says, but we're waiting for our adoption. So, so, do we have it or are we waiting for it? Answer, yes. Yeah, yes. To both of those. Paul is saying that yes, you have received your adoption, but so much of your adoption is in the future. So many of the promises will be fulfilled in the future. Your future is so incredibly bright in Jesus that it is also true to say that you're waiting your adoption. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that there's so much of our adoption, so much of our salvation, so much of our redemption that is still in front of us that it is fair to say, although we have already got it past tense, we are still waiting for it in the future. This is his point here. He's directing us toward this incredibly bright future that's awaiting every son and daughter of God. He's pointing us to this future when the full payment of all of God's promises will be slammed down before us. It's almost like he has given us the deposit of these payments now. You have been adopted. You have been redeemed. But he's saying that the full payment of all of those things is in the future. It will be paid in full in the moment that Jesus splits the skies open and comes back for his bride. Okay, now the question becomes, what is this inheritance? So if we're heirs of God, what is this inheritance that we're waiting for? What is this incredibly bright future that's in front of us? And for that, flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter helps give a little bit of the substance as to what this inheritance is going to look like, what it's going to be. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let me just throw out four things that we learn about this inheritance, this incredibly bright future. First, some particulars. It's particulars. Look at the words used in verse four. Words used, these descriptive words. I love these words used to describe this inheritance. Imperishable. 
You know what's a humbling thing just to consider and to think on? Is that every one of us, for, for everyone in the room, there will be a day where our earthly all is stripped from us. Where all the things we are laboring to build, all the things that we are laboring to acquire, where it is all gone. That day is coming. But Paul says, not this inheritance. This inheritance is imperishable. It lasts forever. There, there will never be a moment where this inheritance goes away. It's imperishable. It will last forever. He, then, he, then he says, undefiled. It's pure. It's untainted. It's unaffected by sin and Satan. Then he uses the word unfading. You know, it's interesting. In Matthew 6, Jesus says that all of our earthly inheritance, everything that you get on this, you know, in this world, everything that you're laboring to acquire and you're laboring to kind of build into your little kingdom, all of those things, he says in Matthew 6, um, Jesus says that, that all those things, it, it, moth, rust are going to break in. They're going to, they're going to, you know, destroy. Thieves are going to break in and steal. That's the future of all of our inheritances. That's the future of all of our little earthly alls. All these things that we're laboring to build, the future of those things is they all fade. But not this one. This inheritance is unfading. It will never erode. It will never diminish. It will never lose its capacity to deliver. Never. This is the particulars of this inheritance that's coming to us. And then look at the place. So first it's particulars. Then look at the place of this inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept where? Where, where is it kept? Kept in heaven for you. This is the place of our inheritance. It's kept in heaven. Now, when you think of the word heaven, just just. Pause here and linger on this for just a moment. When you think of the word heaven, what comes to your mind? What, what sort of thoughts fill your heart when you think of the word heaven? When you think of that word, it should make your soul sing. I mean, it should make parts of you that are dead right now just come to life when you think about the word heaven. It should produce that in us. But my experience is that most Christians, most of those who are following Jesus, that when they think about heaven, it doesn't do that for them. They, they don't think big, grand thoughts. Rather, they think small, boring thoughts. Now, hear me on this. If your view of heaven is small and boring, it means your view of heaven is not biblical. I'm gonna say it again. If your view of heaven is small and boring, it means boring. It, that your view of heaven is not biblical. The life and vibrancy, that, that's the view of heaven. Listen to how Paul talks about heaven in 1 Corinthians. Here's, here's what's coming for us. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. I mean, just think about that. The heart of man has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, just think about this. The, the God who created the Alps is saying this. The, the God who just snaps his fingers and the Rocky Mountains appear. The, the God who created a steak and your taste buds to enjoy that steak. That's what I'm saying. That is what I am saying right there. The, the God who created the beauty of a sunset, created the gift of music and the arts, that God who did all of that is saying, I am about to blow your mind with what's coming your way. 
See, if, if, we're, if we think small, boring thoughts of heaven, do you know what it reveals? That we're thinking small, boring thoughts of God. And God is not small and boring. I mean, just think about your, like your own soul. Who gave you the desire for thrill and adventure and joy and happiness? Who, gave, who created that desire and gave it to you? God did. The, the God who's creative enough to think up of, I'm gonna create the emotion of, of joy. I'm gonna come up with the capacity for thrill and adventure. I'm gonna do all of that. It's that same God that does all of that that's saying, and what I have coming for you is about to blow your mind. This incredibly bright future is going to be, it's gonna be so great that, that if I put it in front of you, you would not have the capacity, your heart would not have the capacity to take it all in. Listen to how one um, pastor, how he describes heaven. He says it this way. Wherever you turn your eyes, you will see nothing but glory and grandeur and beauty and brightness and purity and perfection and splendor and satisfaction and sweetness and salvation and majesty and marvel and holiness and happiness. Everywhere you see, that's what you're going to be seeing. He, he goes on, we will see only and all that is adorable and affectionate, beautiful and bright, brilliant and bountiful, delightful and delicious, delectable and dazzling, elegant and exciting, fascinating and fruitful, glorious and grand, gracious and good, happy and holy, healthy and whole, joyful and jubilant, lovely and luscious, majestic and marvelous, opulent and overwhelming. Everywhere you see, it's gonna be radiant and resplendent, splendid and sublime, sweet and savoring, tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. That is the incredibly bright future that is called heaven. That is awaiting every son and daughter of God. That's the place of our inheritance. Now the person of our inheritance. Although everything that was just read in that paragraph is true about the place of heaven, the greatest thing that we could say about heaven is that God will be there. It's that the one that our hearts were created for, we will be in his presence with unhindered access. Like all the things that hinder our access to him now, namely our own sinfulness, just the distortion in our heart, all of, all of the things that hinder our access to him now, they will all be removed and we'll have unhindered access with the one our hearts were created for. Um, we periodically sing this song by Phil Wickham called Beautiful. Y'all remember the song? Y'all know it? So a lot of times when people sing that song, I wonder, do we know what we're singing and saying about God? When we call God beautiful, we're not just looking at God and saying, you know, we have a handsome savior. That's not kind of the rich, robust thing that we're saying in that moment. When we call God beautiful, we are saying something about God. It's a theological attribute of God. When we call God beautiful, we are reminding ourselves. We are adoring God and we are saying to God, you, God, are the sum total of everything desirable. Like everything that our hearts want, everything that our hearts crave, the deep aches of our soul, you are the sum total of all of those things. Everything we want is found in you. When we say to God, you're beautiful, that's what we're saying to God, that you are the sum total of everything we could want 
This is God. This is what we're gonna experience one day in heaven. I love the last verse in that song when he says this, when we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, and that's coming for every one of us, where tears will be no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride, us, the church, will come together and we'll sing your beautiful God, you're the one we've been waiting for. It's you in your presence that our hearts have always longed for. Listen to Jonathan Edwards describe heaven in light of this and describe the God that we're going to experience in heaven. Listen to him describe this. This is in, this is in poetic language. So just follow this and try to grasp what he's saying here. He says, there in heaven... This infinite fountain of love. This is what he's calling God. There in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, God, this eternal three in one, this God, this infinite fountain of love, he is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. So you see the picture so far? God is pictured as this fountain of love. And we have unhindered access to this fountain of love. This is heaven. He goes on. There, this glorious God is manifested. He is shown. This glorious God is manifested and he shines forth in full glory, in beams of love. There, this glorious fountain, God, this glorious fountain, forever flows forth in streams. Yes, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers of love and delight, they swell, as it were, to an ocean of love. This is heaven, an ocean of love, in which the souls of the ransomed, you and me, all of his kids, the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts will be, as it were, deluged with love. That's what's coming for every son and daughter of God. The place of heaven, yes, but more importantly, the person of heaven. Unhindered access to God himself. And lastly, when we're talking about the inheritance, it's personal. It's personal. Here is how he says it, Peter says it. It's kept in heaven for who? For, for you. I love that personal little note. It's not just kept in, in heaven for the, the ambiguous masses out there. No, it's kept in heaven for you, like for you individually, for you in particular. This inheritance is coming for you, to you. This is your incredibly bright future. I love how one commentator says it. He says, and just hear this. I'm just praying that the Lord would help us sense this. He says, all of God's promises, this is heaven. All of God's promises will pour into our laps with the potency of joy, with the vibrancy of joy that we were created for, but have never yet tasted. Think of the moment that like, when you just think back in your life, you would just pinpoint, I have never felt more joy than I did in that moment. God is saying here, that right there is just a shadow of what you will one day experience. That's just a shadow. God's got so much more for you. Now, when you're thinking this inheritance and its personal nature, this is, this is massively important you get this next statement. It, this inheritance is not just something done for you. It is something done to you. It's not just done for you. It's done to you. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter eight. And let me show you this. 
It's a really interesting thing that Paul does at the end of verse 17. Look at Romans 8, verse 17 again. This, is, this inheritance is not just something done for you. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also done to you. Verse 17, Paul says, and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also, now I'm expecting it to say that we may also inherit with him. But that's not what the text says, is it? It doesn't say inherit with him. It says that we also may be glorified with him. Now, why does he do that? Why does he switch metaphors? Why do we go from inheritance to glory? Here's what I think is going on there. I think the word inheritance has been stretched to its capacity. And Paul knows that this incredibly bright future, is, it's got more, there's more to be said about it. And the word inheritance just can't get it all in. It just, it just won't stretch far enough and wide enough to bring in this incredibly bright future. So Paul switches the metaphor. He, he drops the inheritance language and he, he goes a step further. He presses the English language to its limits and he brings in the word glory. And the word glory is bigger than the word inheritance. It's bringing in more of this incredibly bright future. So, so what is this word glory entailing? What does it mean that we will be glorified with him? Listen to C.S. Lewis describe this. He says it this way. He will make the feeblest, the feeblest and the filthy of us into this. So you just take the most filthy, the, the most feeble and weak. Here's what God is going to make us into. Into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. This is what's coming for us. This is what's going to be done to us. Pulsating with energy, joy, and wisdom, and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This is what we are in for and nothing less. Do you see the incredibly bright future that Paul has awaiting for us? That Paul is reminding us of, that he's bringing into focus here. See, it's this incredibly bright future that makes fire insurance Christianity so crazy. I mean, fire insurance Christianity is, God, just save me from hell. I'm, I'm gonna do something to save me from God has so much more for us than to save us from hell. He actually wants to make us like Jesus. He's gonna glorify us with Jesus. This is what he's up to. This is the incredibly bright future on the horizon for every son and daughter of God. That's point one. Point two and three are gonna be short. Point two. Point one is that the kids of God are heirs. The father's kids are heirs. Point two is the father's kids will suffer. The father's kids will suffer. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, right now is coming. The next word is bringing in a qualification, a hard qualification. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Do you see the qualification? So children, all children are heirs. And all of this is provided that. Here's the qualification. It's provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Now, part of what Paul is doing here is he's protecting us from the idea that if we're kids, our life is just gonna be perfect. We're not gonna have any trouble. It's all gonna go just smooth sailing for the rest of our lives, trouble-free. That's gonna be life for us. 
Paul is saying, that's not going to be life for you. That is not it. It's actually going to be full of a lot of suffering if you're his kids. His kids are going to suffer. I love how Augustine, the early church father, said it. He said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. See, what Paul is doing in this text is setting our expectation. That suffering now is a part of what life with Jesus looks like. And this is why the prosperity gospel is so sickening to me. Because the prosperity gospel says the reason you're suffering is because you don't have enough faith. That couldn't be more contrary to what Paul was saying. Paul was saying the reason that you're suffering is because you're his kids. That's why you're suffering. It's not because of a lack of faith. It's because you're actually a son or daughter of God. Maybe I could press this even one step forward and say it this way. That suffering with Jesus is one of the assurances we have that we're actually kids of God. It's one, of the assur- it's one of the ways that we know that we're actually one of God's. We're one of his sons and daughters. See, a true Christian shares in the suffering of Christ. A true Christian drinks from the cup that Jesus drank from. A true Christian humbles himself and obeys the Father the way Jesus did. Jesus told us in Luke 9, 23 to take up our cross daily and to follow him. Paul, he he goes on to set an example in sharing in Christ's suffering and becoming like him in his death. It's Philippians 3.10. In 1 Peter 4.13, Peter tells us to rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, if you want to summarize that biblical teaching there into a phrase, here would be the phrase that summarizes it. The pathway of Jesus is the pattern for the followers of Jesus. The pathway of Jesus is the pattern for the followers of Jesus. Now here is the pathway of Jesus. It's massively important that you get this. Here is the path. Here is the life of Jesus. It's first humiliation, then honor. First mistreatment, then triumph. Part one of the path is he was reviled. Part two of the path, then he was respected. First, it was rejection. Then he was raised up. First, it's suffering. Then it was glory as he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Suffering first, glory second. That is the path. And that path is now the pattern that we should all expect as God's kids. This, This is the pattern for us. Now, let me just take a moment here. If we could crawl into the lives of those in this room right now, we would see suffering that would just take your breath away. Comes in all shapes and sizes in this room. For some of you, you walked in this morning and you could barely breathe. It was so tangible with your life right now. And to all of those in suffering in just the experiential hard things right now, for others, it's gonna be coming in the future. What if, what if the paradigm that we saw suffering through shifted? What if rather, like, and here's the default mode for, for all of us when we're suffering. For most of us, when we suffer, the default mode happens like this. We naturally begin to think hard thoughts of God and question, God, are you really my dad? Am I really your son? Do you really love me? Are you sure you haven't abandoned me? This is, this is the default pull of our heart in suffering. And, and what if, we, we set in what Paul is saying here and rather, rather than, than allowing suffering to, to create a moment where we question God's adoption of us, where we question our sonship, what if we viewed suffering as the assurance that we're actually God's kids? What, what if we viewed suffering, I, this, this 
crazy thing that you're going through right now, what if you viewed that as, that is actually an assurance that I am one of God's. It's actually showing me that God does love me, that he has not abandoned me, that I am his kid, that he is my dad. What if we allowed suffering to do that for us? To actually assure us that God does love us and care for us. This is what Paul's saying, that the pathway of Jesus is now the expected pattern for all of his followers. It's, it's suffering first, glory second. Here's the third point. Point three. Our future glory shapes the experience of our present suffering. Our future glory shapes the experience of our present suffering. You see this in verse 18. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, by the way, this is one of those verses that should be like in your top list of like things you need to have memorized. This is one of those verses that you need to have like a spiritual vocabulary to remind yourself of. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not worth comparing to that glory. It's not worth comparing to the future glory that is to be revealed to us. Think about the pathway of Jesus. The pathway comes in two parts, suffering first, glory second. Now here is Paul's point in this passage. He is saying that the beauty of the second, of this future glory, the beauty of the second makes the difficulty of the first seem light and insignificant. When we see the beauty of what's to come, the future glory that's gonna be revealed to us, when we see that, it makes all of our present suffering seem shallow and light and just not a very big deal. It makes it all really manageable for us. But when we're seeing the future glory that is to be revealed to us. See, the, the reason that we have to think on our future glory, that we have to know it and understand it is because to the degree that you know and understand it is the degree to which you can endure your present suffering. Now, let me just put this in an illustration really briefly. Picture uh, two people. They each have $10,000. That $10,000 is their life saving. It's everything they own. I mean, it is everything to them. They go home tonight, that $10,000 is in their pocket. It vanishes. They lose it. They don't know wh wh what's happened to it. They have lost their very life. Now imagine that one of those two people that have just lost their life savings knows this. Tomorrow in their bank account is going to mysteriously show up $10 billion. And just ask yourself the question, is the experience of this loss going to, to be different to these two people? To the one who knows what's coming tomorrow and the one who doesn't know what's coming tomorrow? The answer is yes, their experience is gonna be much different. To one, this moment is going to be devastating. To the other one, this moment's gonna, the, the loss of everything they own, the 10,000, it's gonna seem light and insignificant in light of what is coming to them. Now that's the picture of what Paul is showing us. When we know what is coming, this incredibly bright future, it gives us a new hope in the midst of our present suffering. 
Think about um, the New Testament authors for a minute, the, the, the people we see in the New Testament. I am continually amazed at how they dealt with their suffering. If you're following along in our Bible reading plan right now, we are in the book of Acts. And if you have been reading along in that Bible reading plan, you are getting an up close and personal look at Paul's suffering. Now, when I talk about suffering, oftentimes I don't even feel qualified to talk about it. But Paul was qualified to talk about suffering because that man suffered. If you're reading along in Acts, here are just uh, some of the things he endured. He endured a shipwreck. He endured prison. He endured beatings. At one point, he was, um, he was stoned to the point. Like, like people got stones, they beat him to the point. And these were like not novice you know, people that were stoning other people. They were good at this thing. They stoned him to the point where they just let, they, they knew he was gonna die. They left him for dead. I mean, it's just to the point where there's no way he's recovering. This man is surely gonna die at what just happened. This is the sort of suffering that Paul went through on behalf of Jesus, for Jesus' sake. And I'm just amazed at how he dealt with it, how the New Testament authors dealt with it. This man's rejoicing when he's getting imprisoned. He is, he is rejoicing in his suffering. In that moment of, of being left for dead after being stoned just to the point of death, it's amazing that how, the, how the New Testament kind of unpacks that moment. It basically says, after everybody left, he got up, he kind of dusted himself off and he walked to the next town and preached in the next town. It's like, what is wrong with this guy? How can a guy do that? This is crazy. Now it should make us ask, how is that possible? How did they manage suffering like that? How did they deal with suffering like that? Where did that sort of hope come from? How were they not devastated in depression and despair in light of their suffering? How is that possible? Answer, Paul's hope, their hope was attached to heaven. That's why it's possible. See, when we are nearsighted, when, when our whole world revolves around the here and now, it makes suffering unbearable. We cannot deal with suffering when all of our hope is tied into the here and now. But when we have this incredibly bright future in front of us, it gives us a rugged hope. This is what it does for us. Listen to how Paul talk about, talks about how he dealt with suffering in his life. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16, 17, and 18. Paul says it this way. So we do not lose heart. We're suffering. I'm getting beat to death. I'm getting in prison. I'm getting lashed. I'm shipwrecked. It's just terrible. But we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, just got beaten to death, this light momentary affliction, this light momentary, here's what it's doing. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He is, he, he's, a, he's, he's a realist. He's not like scraping loss under the rug. He is losing things. There are things in his life that he is losing that he will never get back. And that is our story too. If you're living in a fallen world, you are constantly losing things that you will never get back. That relationship, that person who's died, your health, your wealth. We're constantly losing things that we will never get back. How did Paul deal with those constant losses? How did that not just grind him into the dust? How, how did, how did he deal with that? Here's his answer in 2 Corinthians 4. 
The answer is Paul's future gains are brighter and bigger to his heart than his present losses. Paul's future gains are bigger and brighter to his heart than all of his present losses. This is what Paul is wanting us to see. He's trying to get us to fix our gaze on what is to come, this incredibly bright future. And when we do that, it transforms and changes all of our present experiences, especially our experience of suffering. So let, let me just kind of land the plane with this. There are really two ways that you can live, and there's, there's really only two. Way number one is you can set your hope on the here and now. You can act as if this is all you have to live for, the here and now. And so you, if you're living like that, here's your mindset. I'm gonna spend today eking out as much joy as I can for the here and now because it's all I have. So I've gotta take advantage and, and just milk every last thing I can out of the here and now. Option number two, way number two, is you can fix your eyes on the incredibly bright future that's to come. Those are really, at the end of the day, the only two options. You, you can get a sense now of that this life now is really just a, a, a preview of coming attractions. It's really pre-life to the life that is coming for us. That, that's option number two. And when you wake up on Monday and you roll out of bed, one of those two paradigms are gonna be controlling your day. Either it's way number one, let's eke out everything we can now. Let's do it all now because this is all we've got. Or we can forego a million things now because our, bright, our future is so bright. One of those two paradigms is gonna control everything. Now, here's the thing with all of our hearts. Our hearts are, are so deformed by sin that in this fallen world, they are constantly pulling us to way number one. If you do nothing about your heart, it's gonna constantly be dragging you in to, to the, the mindset of way number one that we're gonna live for the here and now. Let's eke out as much as we can now because this is all we've got. And if we don't constantly pull back on that, eternity, our incredibly bright future is gonna be scraped right under the rug and we're gonna lose sight of it. So what is Paul's remedy to that? The first three words of verse 18. For I consider. It's some of Paul's favorite words. He's already said that 15 times in the book of Romans. For I consider. To consider something, it has this idea of like you're doing a mathematical equation. You're, you're bringing the facts and figures out and you're getting to the conclusion. It's you're studying the facts and you're coming to the appropriate conclusion in light of that. And Paul is saying, this is what I'm inviting you to do. This is what I want you to do. If you wanna screw the incredibly bright future down into your heart where you actually live in light of it, you've gotta consider it. You, you, just picture you breaking out the scales. Uh, on side number one is all of your present losses. All, your earthly all, all of these things that you're laboring to build and acquire and to do, right? This is, this is on one side of the scale. That's one side. Then the other side of the, the scale is this incredibly bright future awaiting us, that we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus, our elder brother. And that's in this side. Paul is saying, you've got to consider, you've got to think on, you've got to let this stuff get into you to the point where your incredibly bright future is brought home to your heart to the degree that this side of the scale is so much heavier and weightier than the other side. Paul is saying, you've got to labor to that. This is one of the most important disciplines you can do is to labor to get a realizing sense of this incredibly bright future. Now, when you're looking at verse 18, I want to point out this last thing. In verse 18, 17 and 18, this is not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, hey, the father's kids are going to suffer 
In light of that, suck it up and figure it out. That's not what he says. Paul says this in verses 17 and 18. The father's kids are going to suffer. It's inevitable. The pathway of Jesus is the pattern for his kids. So, so the kids of God, they're going to suffer. But, Paul says, let me show you why it's worth it. Let me show you why it's worth it. Here's why it's worth it. Because there is an incredibly bright future awaiting you. That's why it's worth it. I, I love what Samuel Rutherford said, an old Scottish preacher. He said, do you feel like you've had a bad life? Anybody feel like you've just kind of been gypped in life? Feel like you've had a bad life, he says. Do, do you feel like you're grieving for the things that you seem to be losing? Who in this room isn't losing things in this world? All of us are losing things. He says, does it feel like you're losing things? If that's you, if you feel like you've just been gypped, if you feel like you're losing things in this world, he says, if that's you, if you feel like you're grieving for the things you seem to be losing, he says, keep a record of them all. Go ahead, keep a bill and on that last day, go to your father and give him that bill and watch how he makes good on it. One instant of glory, he says, one instant of our future glory, one instant of glory will outweigh all the debts you've been accruing. Amen. Let's pray that the Lord would help us see that. I want to give you a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to press into you the things that would be helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And I want to be, just be as crystal, just as clear as I can, crystal clear on this. Not everyone experiences this incredibly bright future. Your experience of this incredibly bright future hinges on you being a child of God. And not everyone are, are children of God. That the way into the family of God is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we turn from our sin and in faith, we throw our lives upon Jesus. It's a decisive move in our life to turn from our sin and to turn to Jesus. It's this decisive move where we hold up our life and say, God, I am trusting in the work of Jesus. Save me, rescue me, redeem me. My life is yours. And it's in that moment that God embraces us and brings us into his family and calls us his own. And if you have not had that experience with God, if there's never been that decisive move, man, that today would be your day. Don't leave here without that happening. Don't leave here without you getting in on that incredibly bright future that God offers. And if that's you this morning, under your seat is a guest card. Fill that guest card out. Check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. Put that in the offering basket at the end. And we would love to celebrate with you and begin to walk forward with you in this. And for the rest of us, oh, that God would give us a realizing sense of the incredibly bright future that awaits us. Oh, that God would. that God would put deep in our soul a belief that our future gains will outweigh all of our present losses.
For I consider that we would be a people who consider these things, who think on these things, who labor to get a sense of the eternal, who labor to get a sense of this future glory, who labor to get a sense of this incredibly bright future. So, so Father, now would you, through the work of your Spirit, press this down into our soul so that we will now be able to live by this. God, press this so deep into our soul that it will make our present losses seem light and insignificant so that as our outer man wastes away, that we would not be people who leave, lose heart, that, but we would be a people of this rugged hope, rugged hope. God, will you do this in us? It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we sing? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.